0: Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for the blessing of salvation through your Son Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for our time during this month and next month to study this theme. We thank you for uh, the speakers that we're blessed to have the, these uh, during this series. Uh, we're thankful for Brother Duncan that we have tonight. We pray that you bless him as he proclaims your word. We thank you for our children's program and pray that you bless the children as they participate in SOS. Thank you for those that lead that and serve in that area. Lord, help us to be proclaimers of your word, to learn your word, and to share the faith, faith in Jesus with others. In Jesus' name, amen. We're so glad to have you with us tonight, and if you're visiting with us, we especially thank you for being here with us, and we hope that you'll come back at any opportunity that you have. Uh, on Sunday, this coming Sunday morning, we have our new members and new Christians class, followed by a church-wide potluck lunch. And uh, if you're visiting, we want you to know that you're very welcome to participate in that, in that lunch and get to know some other people. So uh, those are that's a fun event, and we encourage everybody to participate. We're very thankful to have Brother David Duncan with us tonight from the Memorial Church of Christ in Houston. Uh, David Duncan and his family moved to Houston in 2006, where he accepted the role of pulpit minister at Memorial. He previously lived in Oklahoma while serving as the outreach minister at the Edmond Church of Christ from 1999 to 2006 and as an adjunct instructor at Oklahoma Christian University. David and his wife Barbara met while students at Oklahoma Christian. During their engagement, Barbara was located in Mito, Japan, where she taught English as a vocational missionary. At the conclusion of her assignment, she was joined by David, and the two were married in Japan. That's neat. Uh we're so thankful to have David with us uh tonight proclaiming the uh the next part in our famous last words. Uh Tom and Letha Bailey and Lynn are uh good friends with David and Barbara and, and uh, I know they're enjoying getting to uh catch up with David and we've had David last year, at least last year, if not more than that. And uh another thing that I learned tonight that he married Mark and Stacy Shannon. And they were all at Memorial, but the Baileys and the Shannons didn't know each other, but he married them. So that's really neat that we're all here together uh, at Oldham Lane. So, Brother Duncan, we're so glad to have you with us. Thank you.
1: Well, it is good to be with you tonight. I know you've had some great speakers already. I know most of the people who are on the list this year and glad to, uh, glad to be here tonight. Can you hear me well? Am I okay? All right. I want to make sure because I don't want to have to start over halfway through, and neither do you, right? But it is really an honor to be here this evening and be back with you. This is my second time here, and quite honestly, it is a shock to be here tonight because most places only invite me once if they invite me at all. So to get to come back is really a great honor, and I am really, really honored to be with you. I know Oldham Lane has a great reputation in our brotherhood, and know Chris just a little bit. It seems like we kind of cross paths and miss each other a lot but uh, we have a lot of the same friends and uh, uh, know that great things are happening here in Abilene. I also like this topic tonight that we're talking about, famous last words and from what I understand you're looking at those last words of Jesus especially obviously those last words on the cross and there are about seven different phrases we might say that Jesus said on the cross and we're not going to look at them all tonight because you have all summer to look at those things but we are going to look at a few of them and think about the idea of assurance you know that idea when you just want some assurance to know things are okay sometimes maybe your children have said to you i love you daddy i love you mommy they do love you but what they want to hear back is oh i love you too. That idea of assurance and that is what we also want and it's what we also see that we get from Jesus. And I think about some famous last words. I have a book in my library somewhere. I have no idea where it is. It's not that my library is that big but I just can't find the book. Maybe I loaned it out. That's what preachers do. They loan out books. They never get them back. It's just kind of the way it is. But the name of the book was called They Went That Away." And it's a book about how famous people died, and with most of them, it has their last known words in that book. Now, you've probably heard some of those, and I'm not going to go through them tonight, because I don't want to steal anything from some of the other speakers who may talk about last words, like the last words of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, and some of those maybe you've heard before. But I do remember some last words that were said to me that were extremely important, On Valentine's Day in 1980, my dad was really sick. He had been sick for four years with cancer. And on that day, I was a little boy. I was 12. That will tell you how old I am now. But I was 12, and they sent me to school basically that day to keep me occupied with what was happening at home. He had been in the hospital. He had cancer, and he had been in the hospital. But he wanted to be at home for his last days, lying on the couch. And I came home that day at lunch, which I never went home at lunch, but I did on this day, and although he could barely talk, it was just a whisper, I leaned over and the words he said were, I'm proud of you, the last words I ever heard him say. And I can tell you that those words have kept me going in my life. There have been times that I have had the courage to stand up for what is right because I remembered the words from my dad, I'm proud of you. There have been times that I've had the courage to sit down because I remembered he was proud of me. There have been times that I have stayed out of trouble because of that phrase, and there have been times that I have weeped because I didn't stay out of trouble because of that phrase. There was another phrase he used to use that I used to hear him say all the time. He wasn't he was baptized when he was 40 years old and started preaching full time when he was 41. And I can remember hearing him say over and over in evangelistic Bible studies, if I find out I'm wrong, I will change. And he would say that in every single evangelistic Bible study and I was there for those. And that has always helped me to realize I can change if I learn something, if I learn I have gone the wrong way. Now obviously we don't follow our parents, we follow Jesus, but you understand what I'm talking about tonight. About how much words mean to us. And tonight we're going to think about some of those words that Jesus said, those last words that he said on the cross. And I think in Luke chapter 24, verses 43, and the beginning of verse 44, is an important one. You remember the scene. Obviously, Jesus has, had, has been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been tried by Pilate. He's been sent over to Herod. He's been sent back to Pilate. You remember he's been beaten twice through all of this. You remember that he was to carry his own cross, and he gets to a point he can't carry the cross. And you remember that the man comes out and carries it for him. You remember the story. And there he is on the cross now. The Roman soldiers have come, and they've come with those big spikes. And they have hammered those spikes into his hands. Probably that spike would have been somewhere like right here between these bones. The Romans considered the hand to go not just here like we do, but to go to here. And those spikes are in his hands. and They're in his feet. And he's on the cross. And all these people are making all this commotion around him. <clears throat> and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed. It is hard to believe that anyone at that moment could say, forgive these people who are doing this to me. At that moment, would you not want to yell at them? Would you not want to just scream at them? Would you not want to say you are about to have vengeance come down on you like you have never seen before because you are killing the Son of God? Isn't that what you would imagine Jesus would say or what you would say? And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the crowd stood by and watched. And the leaders just scoff and say things about Jesus. You know, if it would have been today, you know what the crowd watching would have been doing instead of helping. They would have all had their cameras out filming the execution and sending sending that off to social media somewhere rather than helping Jesus. And so while I would have imagined Jesus... Excuse me, if I didn't know the story, I would have imagined Jesus to be so upset. But there's incredible assurance here. The assurance is that Jesus practiced what he preached. He practiced what he preached. See, that's an important thing. Because all this time, Jesus has been telling his disciples about the importance of, of forgiving. Do you remember that? Excuse me, now I'm over the cough. I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay, I'll take it, but I'm okay. In Matthew chapter 18 and verses 21 and 22, then Peter came up to Jesus and he said, this is way before the cross. And he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times you forgive him but 77 times, or, or, or 70 times 7. So how often do I forgive? And surely Peter, on that day that Jesus said that, surely Peter's thinking, wow, Jesus is so naive. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be persecuted. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to have people say things against you Because if Jesus really knew that, Jesus would never say forgive 70 times 7 or 77 times. He would never say something like that. Yet that's what Jesus said. You remember whenever the apostles came and and said said, Lord, teach us how to pray, and he gave what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, and Jesus said, and forgive us of our sins, or forgive us of our debts, just as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus taught radical forgiveness. And now when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus lives radical forgiveness. There's great assurance in hearing those words from Jesus. Because what we know is, is the man who preached that is also the man who was willing to say that When he was dying by execution. That is an incredible savior that gives us all assurance and gives us hope. Now there's another one too that you know, another famous one that whenever he was being tried between the thieves, I'll take the water, thank you. Whenever Jesus was being tried between those two criminals, and you know the passage, Luke 24, 42 and 43, when it says, and Jesus said, Remember, or, the, or the, the criminal said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. You remember how that whole passage sets up, right? You remember there are the two criminals that Jesus is between. We always talk about, I've preached it a thousand times, how horrific it is that they take the one pure Son of God and put him between two criminals who obviously have done things against the state and things against God. But yet, when Jesus was not hanging on a cross, where did we find Jesus often? But between tax collectors, and sinners, and criminals. It's where Jesus spent a lot of his life. And so here are two up there, on their crosses near Jesus, and one of them, if you remember in one of the other Gospels, he starts going off on on Jesus himself, talking about Jesus, joins in with the crowd. He can't be very bright. He doesn't realize he's dying also. And this one criminal says, Oh, Lord, remember me. Remember me when you come in your kingdom and Jesus says to him, I'm going to see you in paradise. And Jesus, who had the power to save, saves this man. There is incredible assurance in all of that. Because hope is for even the worst of us. Even the one who feels like they are the worst sinner that has ever walked on the face of the earth, Jesus says, I can save you. I have that power. So whoever it is, whoever you are, whatever you've dealt with in your life, whoever you have walked out on, whatever you have put into your veins, whatever you have stolen, whatever you have said, Jesus says, I can forgive you. And we understand that beautiful way that we do that now of how we, can, we admit our sin, we repent of our sin, we're baptized into Jesus, and our sins are washed away and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. We learn all that and how incredible that is. You see, this is great assurance, that Jesus was willing to save a man that was being executed. And if Jesus is willing to even save an exec- a man being executed, he'll save me, or is willing to save me, if I'll turn to him. That is incredible assurance that Jesus gives us, that he loves us and cares for us, in Romans 6, 23, you remember it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, when you get a job, everybody wants to know, hey, what's the salary? How much does it pay? My daughter just got a new job the other day. You know what her first question was? Was How much are you going to pay me? So I said, don't say that first. Say that later on. It shouldn't be the first thing out of your mouth. She still got the job, so it all worked. And so whenever we ask the the devil, hey, I'm going to sin, what's the pay? Death. And somehow we say, hey, that's not bad, I'll take it. Somehow we end up taking that job. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. What Jesus was saying to that man on the cross that day was, I will give you eternal life. Now there's a whole other sermon about the thief on the cross, you know that. But we understand that we can have eternal life through Jesus. That's incredible assurance that Jesus was still talking that way, even though he was in in the midst of terrible pain. And then there's another that I don't know if you've thought much about. It's when Jesus talks to his mother. In John chapter 19, in verse 26. I don't know exactly, obviously, what the scene was like, but you can imagine you have Roman soldiers around you, you have members of the Sanhedrin who are there, there are other people who just like to come and watch someone be executed, just like in the cowboy days when the town would turn out for the hanging, there are people who turn out just to see Jesus executed. And so all these people are around, and then somewhere there, in close enough earshot, are John, and Mary, and the Aunt Mary, and a few others. And Jesus talks to her from the cross, and talks to John from the cross. And Jesus says, when he saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour on, the disciple took her into his own home. I don't know about your relationship with your mother. You might have had a good relationship. Maybe you had a bad one. But I want you to understand the humiliation of what was going on. From what we understand of crucifixion, no one was ever crucified wearing any clothes. That little thing you see Jesus wearing on pictures, he probably didn't wear. There was more cruelty to the cross, way more cruelty to the cross than is ever explained in sermons, and it wouldn't be appropriate for everyone to hear all those things that, go, that would have gone on. But he has been beaten and bloody. Surely by this point, he's swollen And as he's on the cross, and his mother sees that, she loves her son. Some say, some think, that Mary was somewhere between the age of 13 and 16 when she had Jesus. That was the age that women got married. You remember how incredible that birth was? you remember obviously that it was through the Holy Spirit and you remember from time to time the Bible says that Mary would treasure those thought those things she heard in her heart and think what does this mean what does this mean I don't blame her at all for not fully understanding because I mean she's just a a girl and she's having all these things and, and it's not happened to anybody someone 50 or 60 years old or 70 years old wouldn't understand all that was happening, surely. And so she treasures this in her heart, all these incredible things that that, uh, the prophet said to, to her and the prophetess Anna said to her about what her son would be like, what she heard Elizabeth say about what her son would be like. And now he's on the cross and he's dying. And he cares about his mother. Behold your son. Probably not him at this point. He's saying, look "Look at John. John's the one who's going to take care of you. And John, you're going to take care of my mom. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to travel much, but if you have ever been to Ephesus in Turkey and seeing those incredible uh, ruins that are there. It is the most excavated archaeological site in the world, but only about 20% of the city has been, has, has been excavated. You can stand right there. I've had the opportunity to stand right there in the, in the theater where, where they yelled against Paul for hours. But one of the things that they claim is there, Now I don't know if this, this part I kind of wonder. But one of the things that they claim is that John went to Ephesus and that you can tour Mary's house when you go there, that she lived there. Don't know. Ephesus is extremely close to Patmos. Possible. But this is the point I know. Until Mary's dying day, he had a request from Jesus himself to take care of Mary wherever he went. So he took her into his home and he took care of her. You see this is incredible assurance to me at least that Jesus cares about our needs. He cares about us when we're hurting. He cares about us when one of our relatives are hurting just as he cared for his mother. I think about that famous passage in James chapter 5 verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. You see, Jesus cares about our needs. I've wondered before, You probably had this question in Bible class before. How many things should we pray for? Should we really pray for everything? Are there some things that are too small to take to the Lord? Really, what do we pray for? I remember when I was a little boy, my middle sister, I have two sisters, one 17 years older and one 13 years older. I don't even remember the oldest one being at home. But the one who was 13 years older, sometimes it would be my time to pray at the table for lunch. Sometimes my dad would pray, sometimes I would pray. And I remember she would always laugh when I prayed. Because I would say, thank you for the silverware. Thank you for the mashed potatoes. Thank you for the bowl that the mashed potatoes are in. I would go through everything. And she would laugh and try to tell me she was laughing about something else, and I knew she wasn't. I'm getting mad thinking about it right now. (laughs) Well, are there any things too small to pray for? You remember what Jesus also said? That he knows about those little birds whenever they fall. He knows how many hairs are on your head or used to be on your head. Somehow what he's saying to us is, I care. I'm interested in you. When I get to heaven, I would much rather hear the Lord say, David, sometimes you thanked me for some things that I didn't really do. I would rather hear him say that than hear him say, David, why weren't you thankful? Why did you just take so much for granted? Why did you take so much, think everything was just lucky? Why is it that you acted that way and didn't give credit to the king of kings and to the creator and sustainer of the world? I would much rather err on the side of praying, of, of thanking God too much than not thinking God enough. Some of you who are baseball fans will maybe know this name. I love baseball. I love all sports, but I really love baseball. And for all of you who are Ranger fans, I just want you to know the Astros are, are, are ahead of you this year, okay? I'm, and then Now that's over. I have more to say, but I won't. I'm a guest. I'm joking. But at one point, when Cecil Cooper was the manager of the Astros back several years ago, he is a a strong Christian. He is a devout member of the Church of Christ. And when he was the manager of the Astros, he would come to our service on his way, on game day, on his way to the stadium. Well, I would always talk to him because I like baseball, for one thing, and he would always stop by out in the for year and talked to me for a few minutes and we'd talk about the game that day or who was hurt who was pitching all those kinds of things and one day he stopped as he was walking out and he said hey David um uh, I need you to pray the Astros win today and I laughed because you know we don't pray about ball and I laughed and he said no I'm serious I said okay why he said because I'm afraid I'm going to get fired if we don't win I had never thought about it more than a game before. But you would pray about your job. You would pray if you were afraid you were about to be laid off or you were about to be retired without any retirement. Wow. It made me stop and think there's a whole different perspective to this. I heard uh, Bruce Arians, the coach of the of the Arizona Cardinals, the football team the other day, talking about what it was like being a football coach in a radio interview and raising children. He said I would go and tell them, our children, each time we were moving. He said I would tell them myself and I'd always go to my daughter's room and I would sit down on her bed, she moved four times in four years, and I'd say honey we're moving again. And she would cry and cry. You see, sometimes we don't think about all those things. And I'm not going to tell you what to pray for. Please don't pray for the Rangers to win, okay? First of all, pray for the Astros this year. I'm joking about that too. I'm not praying for the Astros, but I do want them to win. But understand that Jesus cares about us. When my father-in-law was having his his pacemaker replaced this morning. I was praying for my father-in-law. I wasn't praying as much as my wife or, or his wife was praying. Surely. But I was praying. You see, Jesus cares. And the great assurance that we get by Jesus looking down. That's not just a, a, a statement to bypass but it's to understand that Jesus cares and in the moment that he could have been so incredibly self-focused, he's focusing on his mother and on his friend John. When it could have all been about him and no one would have blamed him, he thought about us and about our needs. Well, there's another one in John chapter 19 and verse 30. Excuse me. Now the water. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Probably some of you in sermons before have heard the medical, uh, the doctor who explained this medically of what happened when a person was crucified that somehow air is able to get into their body, into their lungs, but it's very difficult to get that air out. And you understand that when Jesus is on the cross, you've seen so many movies, the old movies especially, of where Jesus would be on the cross and he's talking, hey, Mary or or John, take care of my mother and those different things. And it's almost as if he's sitting in a lazy boy recliner as he talks. But understand that when Jesus is saying these things and that air is going into his lungs and it's so hard to let that air out and every time he lifts up, his feet are ripping, his hands are ripping, as well as probably other things that were put in to hurt him. He's doing this in agony. It is these are serious words this, these are not the words of a man who's able to smile maybe he, maybe he is smiling it's just overwhelming but not for the average man he is saying it is finally done do you remember back there in Philippians 2, it's not on your screen tonight, but do you remember in Philippians 2 when you've read that scripture that some think was even a hymn that the early church sang that would talk about how Jesus considered equality with God uh, nothing, that he was willing to give up everything, that he was willing to come and live on this earth. you remember that passage, Philippians 2? Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. But you know what I'm talking about? That from that moment that Jesus was willing to come to earth and then to live on this earth... And to put up with all that he put up with. Often we talk about Jesus came at just the right time, and he did. But he also came before people lived with carpeted floors, with air conditioning and ceiling fans, and he put up with all that. Imagine what it was like to live in a place where animals lived in the house with you. And in the midst of all that, people didn't believe him, and he still didn't sin. And some wanted to listen and follow, and then they would fall away. He would do incredible miracles. 5,000 people are able to eat because of Jesus. And then somehow there is this huge crowd there yelling crucify him, and no one hardly is there on his side. And he never sinned. He was faithful to the mission from the beginning to the end, and he says... It is finished. I've done it. Now that's really important, and the insurance, or assurance is incredible here, because what it means is, Jesus has made the sacrifice for me. Hebrews 10, 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, once and for all, he sat down at the right hand of God. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He made this incredible sacrifice, not because we had done right, but because we needed it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Incredible assurance that we're not worried now about the sacrifice. We can start getting ready now for heaven. Because the sacrifice has been made. I don't have to worry about, is the sacrifice going to be enough? Or will the sacrifice ever come? Because the sacrifice has come. So my question for us tonight is, what's stopping me from resting assured? You know that statement people say to you sometimes? You can rest for sure. Usually when you hear the car mechanic say you can rest assured, you know it's going to cost a lot, right? I'll tell you what helps me rest at night. And I don't and, and I'm really serious about this. I wear a Fitbit all the time. I'm trying to wear it through November 9th. If I if I can do it through November 9th, I have. I will. I'm trying to complete a year of walking 11,000 steps every day, and that's what I'll get through November 9th. I and I get up out of bed and I walk around. My wife says, "You sir, sure aren't losing any weight with that thing." And I say, "Just imagine how huge I would be without it." <laughs> but at night, it's supposed. A lot of you have them. I'm sure you know the know the backstory of them. You know that that you have this app on your phone, and it tells you how well you slept. And I don't think it really is very accurate, and I've read it's not very accurate. But when I sleep at night, I start thinking kind of crazy thoughts, because, you know, I'm asleep. And I start worrying about my Fitbit. Oh, no, I'm awake. Oh, no, what am I going to do? I'm awake. Now I'm not going to be able to sleep. And I end up not sleeping well when I wear the Fitbit. I mean, I have terrible sleep with it on because I'm afraid it's going to show I didn't sleep well. I know, I'm a little bit crazy. So do you know how I get a good night's sleep? I take my Fitbit off, and I'm able to sleep fine. And then I put it on in the morning because first thing in the morning to the bathroom, I want to make sure I get my steps as I go, you know. Some of us aren't sleeping very well. We don't have assurance. Because instead of the Fitbit around our wrist, somehow there is this ring of sin that's around our heart or around our mind. And every time we put our eye close our eyes, it hits us. When we go on a drive, it hits us. We think we're watching television and then we realize we have no idea if we're watching the show or we're watching the commercial because we're thinking about these things that are holding us back. And it's time to take that off and follow Jesus. Now I understand on a Wednesday night probably a huge number of people in here have been baptized into Christ. I understand that. But maybe someone hasn't been. And obviously, what we're to do, what we're taught, and what, at the way it was done after Jesus' death, is that when we have faith in Jesus, we repent of what we've done wrong. We say we're sorry. We turn around. We change. And we put our faith in Christ, and we're baptized into Jesus. For the forgiveness of our sins, and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are added to the kingdom, we become a part of the body. It is incredible, it's wonderful, and all those sins vanish. They don't stay in the water, they aren't aren't with us, they are gone, obliterated, over. And while other people may not forgive you, the one who matters forgives you. God forgives. Now the other big group that we deal with are those of us who did that a long time ago and have let guilt build up over time. Maybe you need to go home tonight and talk to a friend or a spouse or a kid or uh, a mate And say, I need help. I've got this guilt I'm living with. And I need to let it go. I know God will forgive me. He said he would. Now now please help me. Pray to the Father. And live the way I'm to live. This life is way too short to live with guilt. Let's put God first. Let's live with assurance. Come as we stand and sing.
0: Brother, why do you tarry so long?
1: Your Savior.